and welcome to this episode of the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. This month we're going to do kind of a deep dive into what can be a tricky topic. Um, we have been rolling around the idea for this episode for, for quite a while now, um, since before the hiatus, and we really felt like it was important to address something that um, often goes unnoticed or kind of brushed aside in in professional circumstances or in professional spheres or environments. Um, Today we're going to talk about microaggressions. And for people who don't know what a microaggression is, um, there are a couple working definitions that we can use. Um, One of the kind of most common is... um, a brief or a commonplace daily indignity, um, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicates hostile, derogatory, or negative prejudicial slights and insults towards a particular group, um, specifically the kinds of groups that are already oppressed or marginalized somehow. And that can come, you know, verbally, that can come behaviorally or environmentally, so sort of like some sort of architectural or structural um, microaggression. And that can be things like um, for a non-binary person not having a bathroom that really fits their gender identity, or um, that can be a verbal microaggression where someone says something like, oh, you're so smart for a woman, that kind of thing. And those are kind of obvious examples. And we're going to talk a little bit more as we get further into the episode about some perhaps less obvious examples. Um, But that's kind of what we wanted to take today to explore, because it comes up a lot in these environments. And it comes up a lot in day to day life for people with identities that are that are oppressed or marginalized. So we really wanted today to take the time and the space to explore that. And we have two really great guests who are going to help us do that. Um, I am going to let them introduce themselves. My name is Daphne Michelle Titus, and I'm a senior foreign service alumna of the Department of State, U.S. Department of State, and I'm a member of the U.N. Senior Women's Talent Pipeline. I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I'm currently a confidential international consultant based in Washington, D.C. My name's Chanju. Um, I am a women's empowerment and I guess um, pan-African activists so I launched a Zambian narratives project that's all about um, helping children get back to their roots and um, really value their culture in Zambia um, as well as around the world. Um, I also have been a writer for the Global Feminist Collective Verve, um, where I mainly write around decolonizing um, narratives that we have in the West. So I am a black woman who grew up in the UK um, in a predominantly white area. um, And yeah, I'm now working um, to kind of break down stereotypes and make sure that the next generation have representations of themselves in the books that they're reading um, and in the resources that they have. The first question we asked is how we should draw the line between a microaggression and what most of us think of as discrimination. And we really wanted to know, does that line even matter? Daphne started us off with a great answer. I think the line does matter And I think there is a line to me. And once again, I'm just a person who has experienced them all my life as opposed to 
an academic who has been studying the subject as part of how, how I make my living. But the main line to me is that some microaggressions can be unintentional, whereas discrimination is always intentional. Because once again, people are people, people are human, everybody everybody has biases, and some are conscious and some are unconscious. For example, if somebody looks at you and sees that you're a person of color and says, bring from that water fountain, that's discrimination because that's intentional. They want to make you separate. But if somebody who is not a person of color says to a person of color, oh, you're so, oh, you're so articulate. That is a microaggression, and it could be intentional, or it might not be, but the effect, the effect is still the same. Chanju also provided some interesting food for thought on this. I think, for me, a microaggression is kind of the nagging daily notion and the little comments that come in where you sometimes question yourself and you think, is is that something that's, I don't know, racist, sexist? Is that a microaggression? Like, what's going on? Um, and it's not as clean-cut as discrimination by definition, if that makes sense. Um, I think that both are equally as serious as each other. So if you're experiencing a form of discrimination or if you're experiencing a microaggression, just because one might be seen as more valid in terms of discrimination might be seen as something that's more concrete. Um, for me, they're both as serious as each other because they both have the damaging impacts on your psyche, on your mentality, and in, on your um, belief in yourself. And microaggressions kind of play into and feed into discrimination generally as a whole. Um, and so if we're talking about fighting against discrimination, it means that we're talking about fighting against microaggressions as well. Um, and it's something that we do need to focus on, whether that's in our careers, in our friendship groups, in our families. Um, it's about calling it out in all these different scenarios um, that you might find yourself in. I really think both of these women have really good points. And I think that what they're saying is is really getting to the heart of the issue. One thing I really want to highlight is this idea that like, sometimes you can't always know whether a microaggression is coming from a place of either like an entrenched oppressive thought process, or a racist or a sexist thought process, or whether it's really just, you know, a, a comment someone is making, that's not kind of being drawn from their deeper prejudices, whether those are conscious or unconscious. And I think another really good point that's made here is that you can't necessarily deprogram yourself entirely from having these sort of initial thoughts about a person, like a taxi driver who maybe has an accent and you start giving them directions, even though maybe they've lived in the city for as long as you have. And that's something that I think is really important. And some of the best advice I've ever gotten is I was once told that like the first thing you think 
is what you've been programmed to think or what you've been told to believe. And then the way you react to that actually tells you who you really are, what you really believe, kind of what your actual moral or ethical framework is. So clearly that's a really valuable question and that's a really valuable kind of delineation to make, especially if we're having this conversation. And so we followed up by asking these two women if they could talk about a time they felt that they handled a microaggression really well and then a time that they kind of regret the way they handled a microaggression and then help us distill some broader principles from those experiences. We'll start off with Daphne. I'm very proud of how I handled the microaggression very well because, as I said, I'm an American diplomat. And when I started about 30 years ago, I got a house in southeast Washington, D.C. And even though Congress is located in the eastern portion of the city, most people assume that it was all south of the river and there'd be dragons and it wasn't safe to go there. Whenever I would work late and try to get a taxi back because public transportation for a woman alone at 9 or 10 o'clock at night is not, has never been safe really in D.C. So if I worked late, I would try to take a taxi. But if you say you're going to an address in Southeast, Taxi drivers usually turn away and just drive off regardless, regardless and get back at the end of the line or just drive away. So instead of screaming or stamping my foot in disarray, I wrote a letter to the security office at the State Department and I wrote a letter to the taxi commissioner as in about a month. That stopped happening. I was very pleased to see that. However, even though that was taken care of, the microaggressions continued because once the taxi drivers were picking people up, they would invariably assume that I must be a secretary or a custodian or some sort of administrative person as opposed to as opposed to a foreign service officer. And that is when especially when I was younger, I was not very good about responding. For example, if somebody would say, for example, Oh, you're so articulate, where are you from? I would usually say something smart like, I'm from California, perhaps you've heard of it which is not the way you should respond because two wrongs and two people being obnoxious and two microaggressions don't make a right. So with time, I've learned to respond to microaggression with something that will enable both of us to learn and as I said, and because I've endured them so much, I do my level best not to engage in them myself. In my current position as an owner of my own business and in life, microaggressions are constant and endless, especially if you're a person who is not a part of the quote-unquote group in power or 
with influence wherever you're located. And because of that, there are really two things you can do because you can't control the people who are doing the microaggressions. What you can do is control how you react to it and react in a way that hopefully teaches them something so they won't do it again. And the other thing you can do is to check yourself and make sure you don't engage in microaggressions because people are people and to have bias is human, but how you react to it and whether you acknowledge it and work on it makes a difference. So I am a, I'm a woman of color. I'm an African-American who has been in the world of international diplomacy for over over 30 years. So I've been, I have had to endure microaggressions all over the world for all sorts of reasons. I've endured microaggressions because of my race. I've endured microaggressions because of my sex. I've endured microaggressions because of my age. I've endured microaggressions because of my nationality. And as I said, because that sort of thing is legion, I have come up with several ways of responding to people. I try to respond in a way that although it lets them know that this is a microaggression, they should not repeat it to me or anybody else, but give them an alternative way to interact. And once again, because I've endured so much microaggression, I try to police myself and make sure that none of my biases come across in statements or interactions with other people. Chanju also shared some really interesting thoughts on this. For me, I've actually struggled to think about a time where I could say, yeah, I think I've come out of that and handled it really well because I think microaggressions get you to the extent that you don't really know how to react. So it'll be small things like, for example, the amount of times that I've had, oh, you you speak really well for a black woman or, oh, I didn't, I, you don't sound like that. And then also growing up, I'd always, always have small, um, you know, the nigglings of, oh, okay, I think you, you really should be white. Like, you're black on the outside, but white on the inside, you're an Oreo. And things like that, that then transfer when you're an adult to some things that can be more serious or that, or things that, that when I've experienced them, I've struggled to figure out how to actually respond. So an example would be with um, my hair, the amount of times that I've had strangers come up to me and just touch my hair without asking um and also it's a bit it's weird to ask to touch someone's hair anyway if you don't know them like it's not something you know that you should be doing Uh, and every time that happens I just I'm really shocked and don't actually know how to react and I think that's something that's important to talk about is how how can you react when you have something as shocking as that um so for me 
for example, I think I'll use the example of the time when I was in an Apple store and um, this woman asked, oh, I love your hair. And I was like, okay, great, thank you. Um, and she asked if she could touch it. And I said, no, um, that's okay. Uh, you don't need to touch it. And she just did it anyway. I was shocked and didn't actually know what to say then. And I just was like, oh, um, I, I didn't want you to touch my hair. And she was like, oh, sorry, but it's just so lovely. And then she walked away. And so I came away from that feeling like I could have done more. I could have said more. I could have stopped and educated her on actually, no, I'm not a petting zoo. Um, this is why you shouldn't just touch a black woman's hair or any woman's hair for that matter. Um, when you're out in public, you, I'm not an animal or a toy for you to play with. Um, but I didn't do that. So I think I've, I struggle to think of times when I can say, okay, I handled that microaggression really well because each time it happens, it's kind of, it brings in a bit, an element of self-doubt and it brings in an element of, oh, am I, am I, should this be happening to me? Am I, um, am I overthinking things? Is this, is it normal to do, for people to do this? Um, so yeah, definitely I think, yeah, it's hard to find a time when I can say that I've handled this microaggression really well and I've come away from it. I think for me, my outlet has been writing. So I'd probably come away from it, reflect and then write articles and think about how actually in the future it's better to um, to react in a different way or try to educate someone, um, try to keep my cool and um, not, not let it get to me too much, if that makes sense. Next we talked about how we all have intersections of privilege alongside our marginalized identities. And we wondered, when we find ourselves in a position of power, how can we be good allies to other people who are marginalized on other axes? Chanju gave us a great example. For me, it's about making sure that we're taking up space in the right places and making sure that we're giving a platform to people's whose voices matter in different situations. So, for example, in um, the writing that I've previously done and um, in previous podcasts that I've done, I would always make sure if I'm writing about a topic that I might not be, that might not be actually impacting me directly, is that I will point to the key voices and people who are talking about this who are actually involved in the situation so for example um it might be that i'm talking about an lgbtq plus issue um and making sure that actually i'm pointing and saying hey look you're reading this article but actually here are five um people who you should be following and who you should be listening to about this so using your platform to point to others i think is a really important thing to do especially when you get to a position where you have got influence or you have got any power um, rather than using your voice to talk about issues that you might not be a hundred percent, you know, the right person to talk about. It's making sure that you then bring in the right voices, bring in the right people, point out, point people into different resources, into different books, into different areas that they can go to and, also just uplifting other women and or you know other people as well um, and making sure that they get an opportunity to have a platform as well and being a true ally I think for me is all about that it's about actually stepping aside and letting the people that are going through things or whose identities you might be um, 
talking about or um, trying to shine a light on different issues about is making sure that they're the ones that actually get to have the dominant um, voice in the conversations and they're the ones that are controlling the narrative. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what my kind of take would be on being a true ally and being able to uplift others. Daphne also gave us some great things to think about. As I said, that also goes with checking yourself because since all humans have bias, whether it's unconscious or not, you know, the challenge is if you recognize it and do you find a constructive way to address it. I try to be very intentional in, first of all, in all my all my activities. For example, I try to include everybody that I'm working with in all activities on an objective basis. And in particular, one thing I always do if I'm in charge of a group is I make a point to meet with everybody individually because that way I can elicit their personal views and concerns and be able to actively listen. So if they are having a challenge, I can have a way to remedy it individually. You would be amazed how much information you really get when you're meeting with people one-on-one. I think in a lot of situations, it can be hard to wrestle with deciding when to escalate what feels like a minor issue or annoyance. And this goes back to our conversation earlier in the episode about how sometimes a microaggression might not necessarily be consciously rooted in the oppression that it kind of serves to reinforce. Um, And maybe sometimes it has nothing to do with that at all, but we perceive it as a microaggression because of our other experiences being marginalized. So with that context and knowing that microaggressions are microaggressions specifically because they're kind of small things, how do you decide when to escalate that to your HR department or to your boss? What factors do you take into account when you're deciding to make something an issue or to file a complaint or even to just bring it up to someone face to face? I think that a lot of women are worried they're going to earn a reputation as a troublemaker or a complainer or as someone who leans too hard on the fact that they're a woman and kind of like makes too much of that or or is just sort of like always looking to be offended. And we really wanted to get some wisdom from these women on how they grappled with balancing those sort of competing needs in a workspace. Daphne gave us some great advice commenting on how beautiful or handsome somebody looks. That is something that if I heard it, I would immediately counsel people to not, you know, not say that because some people might appreciate a compliment and some people may not. And in the work environment, you know, people should not be parsing, should not be making, you know, personal con- comments unless you've gotten to a point that a person is actually, actually a friend. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, it's a nice day, but commenting on physica- physicality, whether it's, whether it's 
beauty or a difference or anything people should just stay away that stay away from in the workplace and so if somebody was doing that I would definitely to me or if I heard them do that to somebody else I would definitely escalate it if I was in a position to do so because things that happen in a place where you have to be if there are microaggressions or outright discrimination that has to be escalated. But microaggressions in a place where you don't have to be, you can just leave. But if you're at work, you can't just leave. Chanju also gave us some excellent things to think about. I have grown to become quite an open book and quite a frank person. So when I when I see something that especially in the work environment where it's making someone uncomfortable. So it might not just be myself, it might be other people. But, you know, I've been in situations before where I've felt uncomfortable in a working situation because of comments that have been made or because of general actions that have been taken, which, again, were microaggressions and small things that keep picking away at me. I would just actually be really honest and bring it up with either the person who has been doing it or, if not them, Um, bringing up with a manager or um, escalating it to say okay actually your company might not be as inclusive as you're saying it is or um, just making sure that they're aware of you know how they can actually do better so I think it's really important to actually escalate things quite quickly but escalating it with a solution so for example if there is something that's going on and that's um, bothering you, that's, you know, that's the nuance of the microaggression, so it's not as clear-cut as saying this is discrimination, but it is something that, you know, you know that's a microaggression, you know that that's actually racially charged um, or charged by your sexuality, your gender. Um, you can take that to people who are higher up in the company and actually say, look, this is the situation. I've got a few ideas on how we can tackle this um so for example you might say okay i want to have a workshop i want to you know bring in some unconscious bias training i want to have something where people have a forum to talk about the issues that they're facing and um air it there and and actually say look this isn't something that we're going to stand for as company or as people that work in this company and to be honest for me if the company starts seeing me as a troublemaker then I will be a troublemaker, basically. I will call it out and I will be happy to be a troublemaker to make sure that the next people that are coming into the company or coming into an organization who look like me, sound like me, um, you know, have a similar background to me, don't have to face that. I'm happy to be a troublemaker if it means that other people in the future aren't going to have to deal with it. But at the same time, I know that that's not a position that you can always be in especially if you're wanting to climb up the career ladder. So it's about picking your battles as well and making sure that you're, you know, noting things down. So, for example, I had a colleague who would, every time she heard something that was something slightly sexist, she'd write it down and have a long list of it so that then eventually she would go up to the manager and say, okay, so this is actually what we've heard in the last month in the company, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then there's, you know, concrete proof and something that you can action. Um, So, yeah, it's very very tricky, Uh, I think, it's hard to to say that you're you don't mind being a troublemaker until you're in that position, and it's also 
hard to make sure that you're progressing in your career without seeming like a troublemaker or someone that's um, holding things back. But at the same time, I think it's important to always escalate things and always say that this isn't right and it needs to be changed and there needs to be action in the company. I think that Chanji really hits the nail on the head here when she's talking about finding a balance between, you know, I still want to be progressing in my career and like, it's not selfish to not want to sort of throw a wrench into your own plans. But you also want to think about the fact that if no one had ever taken a risk, if no one had ever protested a microaggression or, or full on discrimination, then you probably wouldn't be in the position you are today. And so there's something to the idea that you owe it to women who are going to come after you or queer people who are going to come after you or people that are a minority religion or something like that to talk kind of openly about my own experience for a second. Something that I had to deal with recently is being, um, one of the only Jewish people in my office and the only Jewish person who was planning on taking time off for the high holidays, um, I had to negotiate with my boss what that would look like because there was no allowance in our handbook for it. And it turned out okay and everything was fine. But I then went to our HR person and I said, hey, I don't want anyone else to have to have this conversation one-on-one and have it be at the mercy of how their boss feels about it. And from there she said, yeah, no, you're totally right. You know, um, she also grew up in a minority religion. And so she said, I want to make sure that, you know, everyone feels like they can celebrate the holidays that are most important to them. And so then it got written into the handbook where we all have a couple of paid days off that are specifically for, you know, volunteering for holidays like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that kind of thing. So to pivot a little bit, I want to talk about how we take care of ourselves in the face of microaggressions and what practices Chanju and Daphne recommended to us in in taking care of ourselves as we're as we're facing these problems at work or professionally. I'll let Chanju start first. Genuinely reading and escaping into books that have people who look like me or have similar backgrounds to me. So like I will I love if I hear that there's a new book out that's got a black woman as the main character, I will read that and empathize with what she's going through and um, kind of have a bit of an escape to say, okay, I'm not going crazy. So, um, you know, for example, um, there's this book, Girl, Woman, Other, that has, that's a fiction book that I love um, that tells different stories of black women um, in the UK. And it, kind of some of the storylines just really resonate with me and they'll pull, pull out like different situations where you know this um the whole don't touch my hair or um oh you're well spoken for a black woman um thing these kinds of topics will come out and it's kind of a release to be like oh wow okay there are there's books where this is written and you know I'm not going crazy because I think that's the one thing with microaggressions is am I actually going crazy is this something that's happening or am I just thinking overthinking things um and I think secondly it's having the right people around you and having that support system or group where actually it is people who are who might be facing similar things so for example I really find it useful having employee resource groups like um that might be Afro-Caribbean groups or um you know groups for um BAME or uh, people of colour, um, 
where you have that kind of space to talk about the issues that you're facing or to vent about, you know, this is what's happened to me. Um, but, and just have that kind of release. I remember in one of my old organizations, like I had, we had one of these meetings and genuinely afterwards, it just felt like we'd had therapy. And I think that's, what's really important is being able to talk about it with people who get it and with people who aren't going to question you. So aren't going to say, you know, Oh, maybe it's because you're, maybe it's actually because, you know, you're new or maybe it's because this, like, Oh, that person didn't mean it to come across that way when you know, deep down how something was said or came across um to you so i think yeah um for me it's like escaping in books escaping in you know social media so going through the um world of black twitter role there'll be so much self-love in there and like people talking about similar experiences and then also just having that physical um group as well like having a physical presence with other people who might um understand where you're coming from and really resonate with what is going on in your um, working workplace or in your life um, generally if you're facing microaggressions in your day-to-day. I actually want to spend a little bit more time talking about sort of what Chanju said here because I think she's right. I think that there is a real sense that that having a name for something gives you some kind of power over it. I think that I find it really useful to be able to name you know, that this is different than than segregation or this is different than when women couldn't have bank accounts in their own names, right? Like, we know instinctively that there's something different going on here. And it's nice to have a way of categorizing these things to say, no, this is a real feeling that I'm having that's provoked by a real comment or a real action that someone made or took. And that's bad. And it can feel bad. And that's not to say that it is on the same level as some of the discrimination that I might have faced if I had lived 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. But it's still bad, and it's still unpleasant, and it's still not something I should be having to deal with. And having this separation linguistically for that, I think is really useful in making yourself feel justified, and in letting yourself have the space to have those conversations. Daphne also had some great tips. A mentor of mine told me that well, this is before the term microaggression came out. But a very dear mentor of mine that I still see to this day told me is that obnoxiousness reflects on the person being obnoxious. It does not reflect on you. You know, try to find a, try to find a way to respond to that respond or not respond in a way that preserves yourself. And then what's most important, what's most important after you have dealt with it, if it's something that you felt feel you have to escalate, you escalate it, or you do or you provide a response in a way that hopefully enables the person to learn something, but then you let it go because you cannot stay awake at night running through your day like a movie, like a movie reel, looking at every interaction for, for indications of ill will or microaggression or discrimination because the people that are doing that will continue on, but 
that will make you ill, that will raise your blood pressure or cause you to not sleep. And the other thing, make sure you check yourself because you're all you're always hopefully interacting with people. And if you've had to endure non-constructive interactions, that should give you the responsibility to make sure that you don't continue to perpetrate in your turn and to be aware, and to be aware of the biases that you have in your, have yourself. And for example, don't immediately become rude and snappy if you call an 8100 number and it sounds like it's not a native English speaker on the phone. You know, check your own biases and interact with them because everybody is a human being and everybody is just trying to do their job and live their life. As always, it was a real pleasure having these women on the episode today. And I want to give them another big thanks for their time, their energy, their thoughts, their effort. And I also want to thank you. Thank you all for joining us this month. And, and thank you for joining us every month. Um, we really appreciate having, having such a responsive and interesting group of listeners. Um, we really value anything you guys share with us. So tweet at us, email us. Um, leave us messages on Instagram. We we value those so much, and um, the social media team makes sure that all of that information gets to us. I hope this episode was useful to everyone, um, or cathartic, if that's what you needed it to be. I hope that um, whatever you needed, we could help you at least get part of the way there. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on whatever app you use. That helps other people find us and it raises us up in the rankings. It is one of the most helpful things you can do. While you're at it, please subscribe to the Women in Foreign Policy newsletter. That is available on our website, which is womeninforeignpolicy.org. If anyone has any thoughts, anyone you'd be interested in us interviewing, uh, please let us know. Our next episode is going to be kind of a fun one on failure stories. So we're talking to women who are in this field now who are super successful and, and have really enviable careers, but we're going to talk to them not about their super cool current jobs or super cool current projects. We're going to talk to them about times they failed. Um, that's an episode I'm personally really excited for. Hopefully you guys are looking forward to it as well. You can follow the organization's Twitter at women in FP. And if the work we're doing means a lot to you, please consider supporting us via PayPal at Lucy Goulet. That's L-U-C-I-E-G-O-U-L-E-T or on Patreon at women in foreign policy. We are an all volunteer team. So that means your support goes even further. We love the work we do and we absolutely couldn't do it without listeners like you. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.